Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What's it like to grow up black in a town that's mostly white? It's very difficult to learn when you're more worried about your skin color versus like your schoolwork. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll speak with two young men about their experiences. Plus, we'll look at how an influx of Somali refugees helped to transform a soccer team and a town. By accommodating new folks and figuring out what the community as a whole needs, the entire community can benefit. We'll also take a look at conservation projects around our region, including a 5,400-acre tract of forest in Vermont that will store carbon to help meet greenhouse gas goals set all the way out in California. New, creative, innovative ways of funding conservation is critically important. And as recreational marijuana is legalized in Massachusetts, growers think about how to go green. We're trying to figure out what is the absolute most efficient way to grow cannabis. Really any plant. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. Around New England, people are looking for new ways to conserve energy. This week, we're going to take you to a forest in Vermont that's helping to meet energy goals out in California. But first, WBUR's Bruce Gellerman asks, how green is your weed? Yes, with marijuana stores set to open soon in Massachusetts, the industry is facing new challenges around the region. Cultivators in the Bay State are facing constraints about how much energy they're allowed to use due to the state's tough regulations. But marijuana, well, it's not a very energy-efficient crop, and the industry is being forced to find new ways to go green. Here's Bruce's story. Massachusetts has high expectations for suppliers of pot shops in the state. The new regs set strict limits on the amount of energy producers can use on their plants, depending on the size of their grows. Cannabis Control Commissioner Kay Doyle heads up the Energy Working Group. We understand that marijuana cultivation and product manufacturing is one of the most energy-intense industries that there is right now. The energy footprint of a typical indoor pot-growing facility is 8 to 10 times that of a similar-size office space. One study found 3% of the electricity used in California went for raising weed. And so we want to make sure that it is um, not something that is going to throw us out of whack with the Global Warming Solutions Act. That act requires the Commonwealth to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050 from 1990 levels. But the energy needed to grow a single pound of pot indoors can put 5,000 pounds of climate-changing CO2 into the atmosphere. Peter Bernard is helping to solve the problem with an active but laid-back approach. On his porch in Taunton, he grinds up some homegrown. He fills a rolling paper and lights up. Bernard is executive director of the Massachusetts Grower Advocacy Council. One of the nice things about this kind of work is you could be smoking up at any given time and it seems like it's okay. Nobody's going to say anything to you about it. Once a type A tech guy, Bernard began growing medical marijuana after hurting his back. 
Now he represents cultivators, large and small, helping craft growers and corporations navigate the complex state marijuana regulations. Uh, you know, if I'm talking to a legislator or a regulator and I'm trying to be all proper, it's cannabis. If I'm talking to my fr- friends, it's weed or let's smoke a bone. Peter Bernard runs the Grower Advocacy Council out of his home, where he also raises his private stash. Whoa, you smell smell that? (laughs) That's the smell of success. It's also the smell of money. A window AC and dehumidifier hum in the background. His small grow room electric bill runs $110 a month. Cannabis likes to have a Goldilocks zone of environment. Your temperature's got to be just right. Your humidity's got to be just right. If you do, they're going to be at their happiest. Bernard's plants look very content. Two blue dream plants with big flowering buds grow under a purple light cast by an expensive LED. And two blue magoos bathed in yellow grow under a low-cost ceramic metal halide lamp. The lamps are on 12 hours or more a day. His small crop highlights the challenges large producers will face trying to meet the new state energy regulations. Those growing over 10,000 square feet of pot are limited to 36 watts of power per square foot. Smaller growers, 50 watts. It's complicated. This is why people are having a problem with this wattage deal. That light costs $150, my ceramic metal halide. My LED light costs $850. But the ceramic metal halide costs me $40 a month to run. The LED cost me 8 So you're paying now or you're paying later. Or you can use renewables. If a commercial grower gets 100% of their energy off the grid, they can use as much electricity as they want. It's going to force larger growers to think outside the box to solve their lighting problems. There are a lot of really viable LED solutions, but the capital upfront investment of that can be prohibitive. Alternatively, growers can think inside the box. So this is the stem box. Basically, this is going to be a pre-built modular grow system. Chris DeNaro is co-founder and chief tech officer of STEM Cultivation. In a Salem Wharf warehouse stands their prototype device. It's designed to use science, technology, engineering, and math to produce pot the most energy-efficient way. As a mechanical engineer, this was like a dream project for me. I got to just take all of the coolest technologies and put together a system to help maximize yield and efficiency of growing. The stem box is a self-contained vertical hydroponic pot farm, roots mounted in 24 plastic columns that slide in and out for harvesting are automatically fed precise amounts of water and nutrients. A five-ton AC keeps 240 plants Goldilocks happy. We uh, just plugged in the pump to get the recirculating hydroponic system going. Now we're going to turn on the lights. Whoa, that's bright. I feel like you have a suntan in here. (laughs) You have to wear shades. The -the state-of-the-art LEDs lining the stem box are made by a Massachusetts company. The lights are intense and positioned just right to maximize plant canopy exposure. To us, efficiency equals cost. Lower efficiency, lower cost. It's as simple as that. Stem Cultivation CEO Kyle Moffat is the money guy. He estimates that in the three months it takes to grow 40 pounds of pot in a stem box, the system will use the same amount of electricity as the average home in a year. 
Licensed growers will rent the boxes and grow the plants. Moffat says his startup needs seed money. What we'd like to do is grow ourselves, get a micro-business cultivator license just for five, up to 5,000 square feet. We're not trying to be, because that R&D will help fund the business. So you'll grow the business by growing <laughs> yeah. the plants. Despite his grown, Kyle Moffat predicts the future of STEM is bright. It could get big fast because our objective is so clear. We're trying to figure out what is the absolute most efficient way to grow cannabis. Really, any plant. And that's why we call it a universal agronomy system. It could be for anything. Marijuana could be just the tip of the iceberg. Lettuce, that is. There are already a few companies in Boston using hydroponics and shipping containers to raise crops. Energy consultant Sam Milton runs Climate Resources Group in Arlington. For me, the really exciting part about this industry is that, you know, I see it as a bridge to a future where we have real sustainable urban agriculture, where we're growing the plants that we need to feed our community here in Boston. Imagine energy efficient, sustainable, vertical indoor farming pioneered in part by pot. Now that's dank. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Let's go next to Vermont, where a conservation group is preserving a 5,400-acre tract of land in the northern part of the state, and they're creating a new model for how to fund conservation efforts in the process. In addition to being a home for wildlife, this forest will also be used to store carbon to meet greenhouse gas goals set 3,000 miles away in California. As VPR's John Dillon reports, the money from that deal will help the group pay for future restoration projects. It's no surprise that people who work for the Nature Conservancy would be, well, very much into nature. So I'm hearing, uh, this is, I can't get away from my bird background, because there's a black-throated green singing up here. And... Jim Shallow, the conservation director for the Vermont chapter, is describing a new forest project here on Burnt Mountain. But he keeps interrupting himself each time he hears a new bird song. White-throated sparrow, uh, that's, you know, core of its breeding habitat is in the Atlantic Northern Forest. The birds do provide an auditory example of a key goal for this project. It's an ecological reserve that will help sustain wildlife in the rest of the region. That population can disperse into the broader landscape. So that's another ecological function of this forest is going to be that place where birds and other wildlife will have core habitat that will be resistant or resilient to the disturbances that will come along. And besides growing birds, this wild part of the northern Green Mountains grows trees. And trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and can store it in their wood for hundreds of years, which makes this parcel valuable in the emerging market for carbon offsets. Companies in California will be able to meet up to 8% of their CO2 reduction goals by buying carbon stored elsewhere. This parcel will be the first in Vermont eligible for that carbon market and it's expected to earn the Conservancy about $2 million over the first 10 years. And we're going to be able to use that income to put into more land conservation. Okay, but first they're actually cutting a few trees. As part of the effort to maintain the land as forever wild, the Nature Conservancy is also restoring a stream called Calavale Brook, whose entire watershed is contained in the Burt Mountain Track. And to improve stream habitat, first you have to drop some trees. What we're doing is trying to restore that component that's been removed from the system, and that's the large wood component. Shane Jaquith is the watershed restoration manager for the Conservancy in Vermont. 
This stream has cold, clean water, perfect for native brook trout, but it lacks some of the elements that the fish need to really thrive. Jakewith explains that large logs in the water provide shade, structure, habitat, as well as organic matter for the insects that brook trout eat. Basically, they're trying to replicate nature, just on an accelerated time frame. These wood features are sort of steps in the stream, and as the flow plunges over these, these step features, it scours pools on the downstream side, so it, it creates deeper pools. If brook trout are the keystone species in this stream, moose are probably the most charismatic animal roaming these woods. All morning we've been hoping to see one, and it happens as the Conservancy crew drives me back to my car. Heather Furman, Conservancy's Vermont director, passes around a pair of binoculars. On the far side of a pond, the female moose seems to be cooling off in the water. Furman sees the moose as a symbol of both the fragility and resilience of the Vermont landscape. She notes the moose are threatened because of winter ticks that are booming because of climate change. She says projects like Burnt Mountain can help protect other areas for moose and wildlife. You know, we're at a place right now where the economy of conservation is changing. You know, public funding has diminished over the last decade or so. And so new, creative, innovative ways of funding conservation is critically important. And the Conservancy really believes in the power of the market to find new ways to fund conservation. And so that's what we're doing with this carbon project. And the land does not have to be kept forever wild in order to participate in the carbon market. The Nature Conservancy in Maine plans to sell carbon offsets from a large piece of working forest on the St. John's River. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Coming up, how a soccer team helped a divided town come together. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. The states in northern New England are some of the least diverse in the country. NHPR's Daniela Alley takes us to the town of Conway, New Hampshire, where two friends have been grappling with the realities of growing up black in a majority white town. And a warning for our audience, this story includes a racial slur. In the middle of North Conway, there's Schuler Park. It's a big field right along the main strip of shops and restaurants. The scenic railway has a stop here. And families throw baseballs and couples sit and chat on benches. Will Krug and Nick Sanderson have lots of memories of playing flag football on this field growing up. Will had the ball and he was like running full speed and I was running full speed. And we just like full on collide and just yeah. smacked each other. We each went back like five feet. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty Probably funny. Over. Yeah. Nick, who you just heard, and Will are high school seniors. They've been best friends for pretty much their whole lives. Probably he's always there for me, I guess, you know? It's probably he's like a brother. My brother, like straight up my brother. But Will and Nick have also had to deal with the fact that they live in a town and area that's 94% white. They're both black, both adopted by white parents. 
And the incidents of racial bias began early. Will can remember someone calling him a racial slur when he was just five. But they called me a nigger, and I was in kindergarten, and they were in first grade, and there was like a fence in between the kindergartners and first graders, and they like came down and said it to me. I didn't know what it meant. Once Will got to high school, moments like that started happening more often. Kids would definitely like lose something and then come up to me and tell me I stole it because I was black. And when this would happen, Will and Nick would turn to each other for support. Just talking about what happened, how to deal with it, calming each other down, I guess. Mostly, yeah, just calming each other down. Just get over it, you know. What, what would life be like if you didn't have the other person pretty to talk rough. about Very that? difficult. Yeah it'd, be, yeah, it'd be pretty rough. Probably, yeah. I probably wouldn't be where I am yeah, right now. I think I'd be in a much worse position. Yeah. Their school, Kennett High School in Conway, gets students from eight surrounding towns. And socioeconomically, the school is diverse. But when it comes to race, not so much. Last year, of a student body of about 800, just 12 students identified as Black. Will and Nick say a couple of years ago, there was an incident that was pretty challenging for them. A handful of students started flying the Confederate flag on the backs of their trucks. Some wore shirts with the flag on it. One student who is white and now graduated posted a video on Twitter of a truck with the flag, sitting in traffic, revving its engine. The caption read, quote, racist and proud. At the time, Will was a sophomore and Nick a freshman. School officials banned students from displaying the flag on their trucks or on their clothes. But some students kept wearing it, just hidden under a flannel. They'd approach Will, Nick, and other students, unbutton their flannel, and ask. Do you like my shirt? It's just a Confederate flag, and it's just like... Why are you asking me, like, specifically? And then they'll be like, oh. Like, they don't really answer it. They just kind of, like, try to brush it off and play it off as they'd ask anybody else. But it's like, I know you wouldn't. Like, I had kids put, like, Confederate flags in my backpack. A group of students, including Will and Nick, wanted the school to address the issue head on. They wanted the school to host a forum to talk about the flag's history and why some people would see the flag as offensive. But if I was to put 500 kids into an auditorium and have a school-wide discussion, my concern was that the discussion would um, turn into a shouting match, and we certainly didn't want that. This is Principal Neil Moylan. That forum, it didn't happen. But he says he did talk with students individually and in small groups, and that teachers could have discussions in class. He says the issue was resolved once the flag was banned. I told him I had heard differently, that the school's underlying issues were still there. So I asked him what role he thinks schools play when it comes to addressing bias. Our role is to address it, and our role is to address it um, each and every time we see it, um, and not to ignore it, and we don't intend to ignore it. Um, And I do think it's addressed every single time, contrary to what um, you may believe or have heard. For Will, the school's response wasn't enough. He saw the whole Confederate flag episode as just the latest example of a hostile environment at Kennett that was beginning to wear him down. There was barely any peer support in the school. Will had few teachers or administrators to confide in. And these incidents, they've followed him since his kindergarten days. It's very difficult to learn when you're more worried about your skin color and, like, Who's going to say what to you in the next class versus, like, your schoolwork? Will had disciplinary issues, in-school suspensions, out-of-school suspensions, detentions. 
And it got to a point where his parents, Teresa Beckett and Matt Krug, who are white, were starting to wonder if their son was being treated differently because of his race. That was the really hard part, was, was figuring out, is he being discriminated against? Is he just a difficult person in his class? You know, is he a difficult student? I wasn't sure. They asked the high school for a racial breakdown of the school's total suspensions, but the school doesn't keep track of that. Nationally, studies have found that black boys are three times more likely to be suspended than white boys. And ultimately, Will's parents decided that the school was a big part of the problem. They feared what their daughter, who's also black, would experience at Kennett High School. They had heard good things about Freiburg Academy, a private school that's free to town residents. It's just a 20-minute drive across the state border in Maine. So they moved to Freiburg. And when this past school year wrapped up, they sent a letter to their former school board in Conway about what they saw as a, quote, prevalent discriminatory culture. Here's Will's father, Matt Krug. There are other people who are going to come up through the school that I hope they don't have to reach this you know, don't have to go through the same thing. In recent months, SAU 9, which Kennett High School is a part of, has started an anti-bias response team. But Will's skeptical about this group. That's why this is funny. Like, that's such a joke. That's just, like, to say that they did something. That's not going to change a thing. <laughs> what, what do you think it would take to make an actual change? Um, to have some school administration who are African-American and make the school more diverse just like the teachers and everything it's just like i feel like it just needs to be more diverse so kids know like what's okay and what's not like if you're not exposed to it then you're not gonna know what to do when you see a black kid and like that's basically what we're dealing with will and nick do have some hope that things will change but they know that there are still challenges ahead and at the very least they say they have each other to rely on to go out and ski longboard, or play some football to clear their heads for a bit. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Daniela Ali. In the early 2000s, Lewiston, Maine, was in the midst of an economic downturn. The city of 36,000 was 96% white, and more than half of the Lewiston families with children under five were living at or below the poverty line. But that all started to change in 2001 as thousands of Somali refugees began arriving in the city. Over the course of the next decade, 7,000 immigrants from Africa arrived in Lewiston. The city was not always welcoming, but this all began to change due to an unexpected group, the Lewiston Blue Devils soccer team. Amy Bass tells the story of this changing team and town in her new book, One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together, where she follows this team as they pursue the state championship for the first time in their history. Amy, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Why were so many Somali refugees coming to the city of Lewiston? So the Lewiston migration is what we call a secondary migration. It's not where they first landed. Refugee relocation sites, they're federally dealt with. So a lot of these folks were relocated to the outskirts of Atlanta, Kentucky, Ohio. And some of them didn't like big city life. They were looking for a different kind of community, a community that they could really create Lewiston fit the bill for them in a lot of ways. This this might feel like a fish-out-of-water story, thinking about Africans in one of the whitest, coldest states in the United States. And yet, 
Lewiston's own economic situation meant that there was space for these folks. It had good schools. It was a safe city. And it again, it, it had vacancy um, because of its own sort of rearview mirror of a, of a factory town trying to find its, its new identity. Um, this was a place where folks could make community. So many of these stories have happened in towns like Lewiston around New England where a small population of refugees or migrants from another part of the world comes in and changes the dynamic of the community. But the sheer numbers are are so important to the story. While the people who have come from Somalia may well have thought this is a good opportunity for them, and Lewiston may have seen them as a good opportunity to revitalize a city, the number 7,000 people into a city of only 36,000, that that must have led to all kinds of tension as it was happening. I think that change often creates tension. And I, I think that tension and change and hate and embrace, and it's all part of this story. I think that it is absolutely, it, it's such a fast migration. And in, in, you know, per capita, the numbers are sort of astounding. But Lewiston city administrators had been working on stabilizing Lewiston and, and figuring out new paths forward for a long time, you know, re, re sort of positioning where the factory buildings might fit in now that the textile industries were no longer in Lewiston. And I think that having an influx of population was one part of an economic recovery, a social recovery, and a cultural recovery. It absolutely has painful moments. Um, it also has moments of coming together. And I think that the competition and, you know, community is not just a statistic, community is a feeling. And and these are folks that were planting seeds and laying roots and wanted to stay. And it had been a long time since newcomers had been in Lewiston with these kinds of, of future plans. They wanted to raise their kids and they wanted their kids to raise their kids there. And And this was a new sort of community feeling for Lewiston to experience. It hadn't had this in a really long time. So then let's turn to that that lens that you use of sports to tell about how this community began to come together. And why don't you start with telling us who, who Coach Mike McGraw is? So Mike McGraw is in his fourth decade of coaching soccer at Lewiston High School. He's Lewiston born and bred, uh, played football for Lewiston High School. And one of his one of the things to check off on his to-do list um, was to win a state championship in soccer. Lewiston never had. They'd been uh, they'd been to the final once before in 1991, and with this new set of players, you know, soccer was slowly becoming a a sport that was no longer a backburner sport. It was no longer kids coming on the team because they wanted to get in shape for basketball or they wanted to get in shape for hockey. These players that began to emerge in the 2000s. These were kids who put soccer first, and Mike McGraw saw a new kind of, of coaching opportunity with these, with these new folks on his roster. He had to bring his team together. He had to figure out a way to get kids to talk to one another, even if they came from different parts of the world or different parts of Lewiston. He had language and cultural things to accommodate and learn. The athletic director at Lewiston High School is, is sort of heroic, I think, in this story because his answer to everything is, we will accommodate. Um, and that means that means a lot of learning and that means a lot of empathy. So, you know, training athletes who are observing Ramadan, for example, uh, in hot summer months, um, playing summer games or getting ready for fall. The little things and the big things, um, kids who have obligations to family that might be different than anything that they'd experienced before. But he also had to pay attention to the way these kids played the game. 
And a lot of people talk about Mike McGraw's heart, and his heart is huge. His head's pretty big, too. Um, He was a learner with these kids. He listened and watched how they played. They played a different kind of soccer, and he needed to coach a different kind of soccer. And I think one of the most magnificent things that he does is he is willing to sort of seed some of his, I guess, power and bring in folks from the community. Um, You know, his right-hand person, uh, Coach Abdullahi Abdi, who's really sort of the coach of everyone um, for these kids, coaches the eighth grade team, coaches all the community teams, Um, bringing Abdullahi Abdi's son, Abdul Jabbar, on board as the first Somali hired to be an assistant coach. So reaching into the community, learning about the community, partnering with the community, And making sure that these kids, um, that they had the mentors and the support that they needed. It's interesting that this lens of sports to tell stories like this, because we often hear of people who could learn quite a bit from others, uh, whoever those others are. But because it has to do with politics or it has to do with government or even business, they're unwilling to listen. But but there, it seems as though there's something specific about sports in which the coach has to learn if he wants to win. He has to adapt and he has to bring on people whose ideas might be different from his just in the goal of winning. Yeah. And, you know, the kids the kids say something that I think is such a great sort of life lesson to take away from it when, when you talk to them about coach or about what it's like to be on this team. And, and they're almost dismissive about it in that they say, you know what, coach doesn't care where we're from as long as we pass the ball. You know, and that's their bottom line because that's how they're going to put numbers on that board. And that's what their goal is. So figuring out how to be together, how to, how to play together, how to work the ball together down the field, they are, they are very conscious that, that they're serving as an exemplar for greater parts of the community. Is it a different story if they don't win, if they don't come together to achieve a goal and just come together to play? Well, I think that, you know, there's there's a transformation going on in Lewiston in so many different ways. And one of the, the big things to see, this is a hockey town, right? This has been a hockey town for a long time. This is a state championship winning dynasty hockey town. And instead of there being a fear of soccer replacing hockey, now it's a hockey and soccer town. So now you have both things being played. And I I think that that's one of those smaller victories, right? That's one of those victories that doesn't have anything to do with the enormous gold ball trophy that that sits in the trophy case um, for representing state championships in soccer. I think the fact that, you know, the city administrators have to figure out where they still have green space in which kids can play, that you see the parking lot of the Androscoggin Coliseum, right, the hockey arena. It's the first thing plowed after a storm. And as soon as that parking lot is plowed, you see kids playing soccer um, in parkas, you know, using snowbanks as the goals. So I think that I think that you do have victories that don't have anything to do with victory. Um, But without question, that state championship game in 2015, when the Lewiston Blue Devils faced the Scarborough Red Storm, that's a significant moment in, in this city's path forward. Of course, the story, as we say, starts around the early 2000s, a bad time for the city. It traces through this this migration of people from Somalia, completely transforming the town, and, and it culminates in this victory for the team. Some things have happened uh, in America and certainly in Maine since 2015. The governor, Paul LePage, who is from Lewiston, uh, has continued to be outspoken 
in many ways against immigration, very much aligned himself with then-candidate, now-President Donald Trump. And Donald Trump did very well in the 2016 election in and around Lewiston, in the 2nd Congressional District of Maine. Do you sense that anything has changed in town since that time, that this town that came together is maybe starting to fray again a bit? I think that coming together doesn't mean staying together. Community is really hard work, and it that doesn't stop. Community is complicated, and and there's coming togethers and there's pulling aparts and then and then hopefully there's coming together again. You know, Lewiston experienced something fairly wondrous at that state championship game in, in 2015. 4,500 people were at that game, uh, about 75% of which were, were rooting for the Blue Devils. And, and that's community, right? That's not just the mom and dads of, of the kids who are on the field. That's community. That's more people than went to the state championship football game a few weeks later. So they, they know what that feels like, right? They, they know what they want to get back to when there is a pulling apart. So, yes, Lewiston went Republican for the first time in 30 years in the 2016 election. And you see, again, a, a rise of, of incidents, um, hateful incidents in terms of the Muslim community in Lewiston. And then the soccer team wins again in 2017. And you see another coming together around soccer, around other things. I think that the community gets stronger. And as the community gets stronger, the community is able to deal with these things. And I think that's what America writ large is doing right now. The book is called One Goal, A Coach, A Team, and the Game That Brought a Divided Town Together. And the author is Amy Bass. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Coming up, Rocky Marciano's New England Roots. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. When you think of New England sports, you might think of the Red Sox or the Patriots. You probably don't think about one of the greatest heavyweight champions of all time, though. Yeah, Rocky Marciano, born Rocco Marchigiano, grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. His first professional fight was in Holyoke, Mass., and most of his professional fights were fought in Providence, Rhode Island. Mike Stanton is a journalism professor at the University of Connecticut, and his new book is called Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World. I talked to Mike about Rocky's childhood in Brockton. He was the oldest son in a family of six children, so there was a lot of responsibility ascribed to him. He loved sports. He had a fairly idyllic childhood, you know, he was a Depression child. He, he was born in the, in the 1920s, came of age in the 1930s. There was a lot of anti-Italian prejudice in the 1920s in America and in Massachusetts. This was the age of the uh, Sacco and Vanzetti, who were arrested on the Brockton trolley near Rocky's house. There were immigration bills passed in Congress to shut the doors to Italian immigrants who were branded as a race of pickpockets who should all be fingerprinted and rounded up. Mm-hmm. So he came of age in that environment. But within the confines of Brockton, there was a very vibrant Italian community uh, that he came of age in. His grandfather was a a leader in the community, um, you know, would grow grapes and have raucous uh, drinking and eating parties at his house. And uh, the kids would hang out together. They would play sports. And he played baseball and whatever sport was in season, was outdoors all the time. 
In some ways, it was a very idyllic childhood. And kids would get into fist fights back then over disagreements, but then they would blow over like a summer storm. Hmm. How did he become a boxer? How did he, how did he make that his trade? Well, boxing, and this was what really drew me to the story, is it's really part of the fabric of America in the early to mid-1900s. And, you know, kids would box in backyards. You know, every little city would have its fight club and fight night. And, uh, you know, guys that worked in the factories would fight and their families and friends would go see them fight. And a lot of them were not, you know, uh, dreaming of glory. They were just trying to get an extra paycheck and do something uh, after hours. So Rocky came up, came of age in that environment. He was a strong kid. He wasn't particularly motivated in school. He dropped out of high school. His first love was baseball. He could slug the ball a mile. And he had a tryout with the Chicago Cubs, and he washed out. And so boxing became his only alternative to avoiding the life in the shoe factories that he dreaded after seeing what his father endured. Mm. Boxing at this point in American history to many people is, is a fringe sport. It doesn't have the same kind of following it used to have. You've hinted at this a little bit, Mike, but maybe you can take us back to that time and explain the hold that boxing had on the communities, not just that Rocky grew up in, but all across mm-hmm. America. Boxing was a very important thing, and it drew an awful lot of different sorts of characters to the crowds. It did, John. Boxing was really, it was a place that immigrants would assimilate. It was a place that they could identify with their champions. It was a place for individuality in an increasingly impersonal age of factories and cities and industrialism. And there were all these ethnic rivalries that would, you know, be like you know, Shakespearean plays that would play out in the ring. And you'd go to these smoky arenas in these small New England working-class cities, you know, Haverhill and Nashua and Portland and Holyoke and Lowell and, of course, Brockton and then Providence. And people would be, from all walks of life, would be there. You'd have the Irish foremen and the Italian workers. You'd have the, uh, the owners of the factories, the policemen, the lawyers, the mobsters, There'd be betting going on in the background. There'd be all kinds of unsavory insinuations about fixed fights, especially in Providence, which was the mafia capital of New England. Well, tell us more about that. Because the mafia controlled so much of the boxing world, explain how it affected matches that Rocky was was part of and also went on around him. I mean, this was this was a controlling influence on the entire sport. Well, there's different levels of it. When you get to the the smaller level, these little working class cities in New England. It was more that the mob, the mob was there. There was a lot of gambling. People would bet on anything, not just the winners and the losers, but, you know, what round would a knockout occur? And, you know, in Providence, uh, Raymond Patriarca was the up-and-coming mob boss of New England, and he would l- kind of hang out in the back of the old Rhode Island Auditorium with the bookies, and uh, there'd be action on everything. And so there would be suspicions of fixed fights and that, you know, a fighter was kind of told that you need to lose because certain fighters were, you know, on the uh, upswing and other fighters were just kind of cannon fodder. One of the things that you, you mentioned earlier was the, the diversity in terms of race and ethnicity that was happening not only in Providence at the time, but in all these mill towns, people who'd, who'd come from all over the world. And many of these, these rivalries made their way into the boxing ring. We hear about a a Holocaust survivor that Rocky fought, about uh, a member of the Army's first African-American paratrooper unit Mm -hmm. that that he fought. So this is really a wide cross-section of America that made its way into the ring with Rocky. How much did race play a part 
in his story. He's an Italian-American immigrant, but he's fighting these people from, from all of these other backgrounds as well. Was race a big part of his story? Yeah, race and ethnicity are really big parts because boxing is a prism into, into the story of immigration because it's the people who come here who are on the bottom rungs trying to climb the ladder to success, to the American dream. And so what you see going back to the, the dawn of the 20th century uh, when boxing is semi-legal, you've got the Jewish fighters in the tenements, you know, battling their way out. You've got then the Irish fighters, then you've got the Italian fighters. And then you have the black fighters and the Latino fighters coming along. And so it's this great melting pot in the circled square. Aside from those ethnic rivalries, what I found with Rocky was there was a surprising amount of tolerance about people who are different. There was no racial animosity, and he respected the black fighters who he fought. He was, in 1952, when he became the champion, the first white champion since Joe Lewis had knocked out James Braddock back in 1937. So it had been about 15 years and so there was this kind of subtle great white hope mantle that was placed on him, but it was not one that he was ever comfortable with. He really did identify with the black fighters that he faced in the ring. You know, great unrated fighters like Ezra Charles, Jersey Joe Walcott, Archie Moore. And of course, he had a tremendous uh, respect for Joe Lewis, um, his boyhood idol, who he knocked out uh, through the ropes in Madison Square Garden to end Lewis's career and propel his own. Of all the stories that you combed through when you were writing this book, what are some of your favorites? Well, it was really kind of a, a journey of self-discovery for me. I grew up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, a mill town on the Connecticut River. Uh, my father uh, grew up in Ware, Massachusetts, a mill town. His father was a janitor. My father was one of the first in his family to go to college on the GI Bill. And he went to college in Providence. And he was there when Rocky was fighting. And he went to some of his fights, and he passed away about 16 years ago. And I, I went through his things, and I found among them an autographed poster of Rocky Marciano. So I like to think that this, is, this book is for all those little towns and all those little fighters that never got out. And, you know, one of my favorite stories is my dad later worked at Mount Holyoke College and across the river in Holyoke, Massachusetts, another great, you know, the paper mill town. I reconstructed Rocky's first professional fight where he fought on St. Patrick's Day under an Irish name of Rocky Mack in this town of heavily Irish and French-Canadian uh, fighters. And it was just a wonderful scene and the, the characters around the ring. And, you know, everyone thought that Rocky was an easy match and he knocked his opponent out in the first round. And then he got into a tussle over um, how much he was supposed to be paid. He was expecting $50. He got 35 The promoter called the cops and, you know, they finally sorted it out and they, they got out of there. But I just love the atmosphere of these working class uh, men and women. It was St. Patrick's Day, and every Monday night was fight night. It didn't matter if it was Christmas or St. Patrick's Day or the 4th of July. Every Monday was fight night. Mm -hmm. When you get to understand the real life of someone like Rocky Marciano or, or Joe Lewis, for instance, these are names that take on this almost heroic quality, and you can imagine stories being told that are, are true but <laughs> are maybe uh, a little bit embellished over time. Is knowing about the real Rocky Marciano make him bigger to you than just hearing the stories that people have told over time, which maybe were a little bit inflated? They do, because, again, this goes back to how huge boxing was in our culture back then. It was as big as baseball, and if you were the heavyweight champion, everybody knew your name. Today, most people probably couldn't name the heavyweight champion of the world. But back then, Rocky was known by presidents, movie stars, politicians— 
And he never lost that New England identity. He never lost that Brockton identity. And there's all these wonderful stories about the the people in Brockton would, you know, take the money out of their coffee tins and bet on his fights. And then they would take the winnings and roll them over into the next fight and the next fight. And they would buy refrigerators and cars and houses. And one time when he was a champion, a writer went to Brockton and talked to a taxi driver who talked about this elderly Italian couple before every fight Rocky had, uh, the taxi driver would drive them to the loan office where they would borrow money so that they could bet on the rock. And Rocky, who was the Brockton blockbuster, he wore the colors of his high school, black and red, into the ring, said that for them, you know, I could never let the people of Brockton down. For them, I always knew that I would get up. Mm. The book is Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World, and the author is Mike Stanton. He joined us in studio today. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. It was fun. As more towns try to draw business back to their main streets, many shopping malls around our region have become nearly abandoned, like the 30-year-old Berkshire Mall in Lanesboro, Massachusetts. But near the Spencer Gift Store in a now-shuttered Hollister, something rather unexpected is alive and well, baseball. Rebecca Shear takes us on a tour of the baseball in the Berkshires Museum. The museum has collected more than 1,200 artifacts, representing everything from Little League, Town, and American Legion teams to the majors and minors. As you peruse the autographed balls and uniforms, pennants and posters, scorecards and photographs, you'd never know you're in a former outerwear store. This used to be an Eddie Bauer, you said? Yes, about 3,500 square feet. But then museum director Larry Moore leads you through a door in the back. This is our kids' locker room. This is a brilliant use of an old Eddie Bauer dressing room. (laughs) Here, burgeoning baseball fans can try on professional uniforms, mitts, and catcher's masks. They can compare their handprints, footprints, and heights with some of the dozens of pro players who grew up or settled in the Berkshires. They can measure themselves up against them. Frank Grant, not very tall. (laughs) At 5'7", Ulysses F. Frank Grant was born in Pittsfield in 1865. The African-American second baseman couldn't break the color line to join the majors, but his performance in the integrated minors and with touring black teams like the Cuban Giants got him into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Berkshire's other inductee in Cooperstown is North Adams-born Happy Jack Chesbro. The pitcher's 41 wins during the 1904 season is still a major league record. But baseball in Berkshire County stretches back long before Chesbro and Grant laced up their cleats. Case in point, a facsimile of a local ordinance hanging on the museum's back wall. Over here we have 1791 and the famous bylaw. Pittsfield created this bylaw after building a beautiful new meeting house designed by superstar architect Charles Bullfinch. And it had glass windows, which were a treat around here and expensive to replace. The meeting house was opposite the town common, what we now call Park Square. That's where I meet baseball historian Jim Overmeyer, who says this was a hot spot for games, especially games with balls. So in 1791, Pittsfield banned all ball games within 80 feet of the meeting house. Because they didn't want the windows broken. The official list included cricket, football, something called cat, something else called fives, and yes, baseball. So the 1791 bylaw? It is one of the earliest uh, mentions of the game of baseball in the United States. Nearly 70 years later, and about 10 blocks north, Pittsfield scored another run in baseball history when Amherst College challenged Williams College to a game. 
The rivaling schools sought a neutral site, and in 1859, they agreed to play at the Maplewood Young Ladies Institute. It was a finishing school for girls. And if you look at the old maps, it pretty much occupied from here to the corner of First Street. Maplewood had recently purchased a building from the city of Pittsfield, then relocated it to campus. And get this, that building was none other than the Bullfinch Meeting House. So the ironic thing is, the baseball game was played next to the building that before everyone had worked so hard to protect from baseball. (laughs) Luckily, no windows were broken in what would become the country's first intercollegiate baseball game. It lasted 26 innings. The game was very free-form in those days. Nobody had gloves. There was no foul territory. The ball could go anywhere. Amherst trounced Williams, 73-32. to 32. Right around the bicentennial, they actually recreated the game, and they used uniforms that resembled uniforms from the time period, and they recreated that right on this field. Tom Daly is president of the Baseball in the Berkshires Museum. The field we're visiting is Wakona Park, built in 1892. Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk got his start here. Satchel Page passed through. A young Lou Gehrig hit a home run into the nearby Housatonic River. And um, one of the things that is unique about this park is that it faces the wrong direction for today's baseball. It faces west. And this was no big deal back when all games were day games. But now most of the games are played in the evening. So the sun sets right in the batter's and catcher's eyes. And they have to stop the baseball game for about 20 minutes to let the sun set. So is that considered like a sun delay? Sun delays. Yeah, they have sun delays, much like a rain delay. Wakona Park is among the last remaining baseball stadiums with a wooden grandstand. It's also one of the nation's oldest ballparks with an active team. Its current residents, the appropriately named Pittsfield Suns, whose players' memorabilia may very well end up at the Baseball in the Berkshires Museum. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. You can look for our show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes, be sure to rate us and review us. It really helps. Thank you. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski, and our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, The Publix Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.